Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Jim Dorn, uh, Vice President for Monetary Studies and also a Senior Fellow at Cato. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us today for George Gilder's Book Forum, uh, his new book, Knowledge and Power, The Information Theory of Capitalism and How It is Revolutionar uh, Revolutionizing Our World. Uh, it's here for sale, and I'm sure George would be glad to sign a copy for you after the, uh, after the forum. Uh, I first, first met George, actually, in 1988 when... Uh, he spoke at Cato's conference in Shanghai, uh, where Milton Friedman was also uh, speaking. Uh, and the title of his talk there, which was later published in the Cato Journal, and then later in a book that uh, Wang Shi and I uh, edited for University of Chicago Press, was, uh, quote, let a billion flowers bloom. Uh, and uh, in that talk and in that article, he said that the key issue for the next 25 years, and it just happens to be 25 years since that conference, uh, is whether the minds of the Chinese people in China will be emancipated on the frontiers of the new economic era. And the key for George was that you must allow individuals, quote, the freedom to pursue opportunity. Uh, that message is at the heart of his new book, where he argues that, per, quote, perhaps the simplest and most suggestive definition of entropy is as a measure of freedom of choice. And let me repeat that, is a, as a measure of freedom of choice. He says, the higher the entropy, the larger the bandwidth or range of selection. And a high entropy economy is necessarily a free economy. So he uses a language of information theory to illustrate the importance of freedom. Uh, now, you might want to compare this uh, with Peter Bauer's definition of economic development. Uh, Peter Bauer was an old friend of Cato. Uh, we did a lot of work with him. Uh, he passed away several years ago. But his definition of economic development is, quote, I regard the extension of the range of choice, that is, an increase in the range of effective alternatives open to people, as a principal objective and criterion of economic development, close quote. Uh, that definition, of course, is in the tradition of classical liberals. Adam Smith argued that if people are free to choose and protected by a rule of law and limited government, a, quote, simple system of natural liberty, close quote, would emerge and leave each individual, quote, perfectly free to pursue his own interests in his own way and to bring both his industry and capital into competition with those of any other man or group of men. And then he said, provided, quote, he does not violate the laws of justice, close quote. Uh, and of course, in the moral sentiments, Smith argues that social and economic harmony, not efficiency, but harmony, he doesn't use the word efficiency, stem from freedom and limited government. And under a just rule of law, quote, the game of human society will go on easily and harmoniously. Uh, so he, his focus was on harmony and cooperation and how under a just rule of law uh, that would occur uh, through the market system and individual trades. Uh, Hayek, Buchanan, and Vernon Smith, among others, have placed the principle of spontaneous order at the heart of economics. In their view, order emerges from freedom under a rule of law. But the principle of spontaneous order is often misunderstood. For example, Norman Berry, uh, in an article in the Literature of Liberty back in 1982, 
stated that the results of spontaneous order, quote, appear to be a product of some omniscient designing mind, close quote. James Buchanan, commenting on Barry's article, argued that, quote, the order of the market emerges only from the process of voluntary exchange among the participating individuals. The order is itself defined as the outcome of the process that generates it and cannot exist independently of the trading process. Gilder appears to miss this point when he contends that, quote, spontaneous order is an oxymoron, close quote, and is inconsistent with information theory. Uh, in how China became capitalist, Ronald Coase and Ning Wang argue that what China needs is, quote, a free market for ideas. They go on to say that harmony arises, not efficiency, but harmony arises only as a result of interactions of different voices through a market for ideas. I think George would agree with that. Uh, George Gilder is the author of 15 books, uh, including his most recent one, Knowledge and Power, uh, which was honored as a Libertarian Book of the Year by Freedom Fest. Uh, and also, of course, you go back to, I think it was his first book, uh, Wealth and Poverty, in 1981, uh, which also came out just recently in a new edition in 2012. Another book uh, that's been highly rated is Microcosm, ranked among the top two technology books by Wired. He's a frequent contributor to Forbes and the Wall Street Journal. He's worked as a venture capitalist specializing in U.S. technology companies. He's a former owner and publisher of the American Spectator and wrote and edited the Gilder Technology Report. He serves on the boards of directors of several private and public companies, and he's the founder and fellow of the Discovery Institute. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome George Gilder. Thank you very much, Jim. And uh, it's rare that you get an, an introduction that is full of food for thought that I should be uh, pondering uh, at my seat here rather than um, instantly uh, responding and uh, crushing the, the uh, points of dissent or critiques that uh, impertinently uh, offers as part of the introduction. Uh, <laughs> but it does remind me of my time uh, with Cato before in China, because that was a, a, an amazing experience back in 1998. And uh, I traveled all around China uh, with uh, Jim and Ed Crane and a whole bunch of, and, but most of all, Mike um, Milton Friedman. And uh, I certainly never won a debate with Michael Fr with Milton Friedman. I mean, it, it, he was the greatest debater that I ever met and probably the quickest mind I ever encountered. But all the same, I left China with the belief that Milton Friedman's economics were fundamentally flawed. And uh, Milton was obviously a great man and, and uh, shaped all our views. But going to China, I think he suffered from a predicament that has afflicted 
uh, quite a few great minds over the years, and that is uh, uh, the crippling impact of a Nobel Prize. The stultifying uh, effects of a Nobel Prize, because Milton Friedman's key message, which he transmitted in China, as I think Jim will uh, attest, was that the Chinese communists needed to understand that the, the imperative of controlling their money supply. And it seemed to me uh, pretty astonishing that uh, Milton Friedman would go to China to tell communists to control something more, even if it were the money supply. And uh, so I, I thought there was something uh, wrong there, but there also, also is there water? Um, also, uh, I had uh, uh, been skeptical of uh, Friedman's, Friedman's view on, uh, on taxes and, and spending. And there was a, uh, because I believed that if government grew through a process of emancipation, the private sector would grow more rapidly. And so even though the government would expand, uh, the total share of government in the economy would diminish. And uh, I noticed today that uh, total government command of the Chinese economy, at least in terms of ownership, as uh, dropped from government spending as a share of Chinese GDP is now down to 17%, which is drastically below um, the share of government in the United States. And, and uh, thus, uh, I believe that China is a great vindication of supply-side economics, of the uh, effect of emancipating the private sector so it grows more rapidly than government, even as government does grow. And I think uh, on that point, uh, I had many exchanges with Milton that I never quite uh, felt he was ready to acknowledge that the positive process that uh, by which government does expand, but uh, the, by creating structures and uh, supports that actually unleash a, a more rapid uh, growth of the private sector. Any case, um, at that point, I was preoccupied with a quote that I'd encountered from uh, Albert Hirschman of Princeton. The, uh, and... Uh, because he's, his point, which I think gets to the heart of the economic problem, is that creativity always comes as a surprise to us. If it didn't, we wouldn't need it. And uh, socialism would work. That's my conclusion. And, uh, and creativity is at the very heart of the economy. And, uh, and creativity goes beyond freedom of choice. 
It's uh, it uh, what uh, uh, entrepreneurs and inventors do is not merely select from a series of options, as even Paul Romer's view of entrepreneurship as the selection of uh, new combinations of chemical elements, reassembling chemical elements. Uh, and all these uh, theories of economics, including even libertarian theories, there's the idea that somehow what an entrepreneur does is uh, manipulate uh, his immediate resources uh, supplied, by, supplied to him by the environment. Uh, I find that uh, this error arises frequently in uh, telecom policy. I mean, all around here uh, in Washington, we hear about the electromagnetic spectrum as being a great natural resource and as being uh, like beachfront property. They don't make it anymore. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum is somehow regarded as a great natural resource that government has some claim upon or that government can actually preserve or protect or that, uh, that uh, and it's really the foundation for most of what the FCC does. And yet, uh, in no significant sense is uh, the electromagnetic spectrum a natural resource or uh, resemble beachfront property. It's, uh, it's a physical concept that reflects physical law but uh, all, as a technology and as a business and as a service, it is entirely created by human ingenuity and creativity. Uh, the, from the invention of the maser and the laser and microwave oscillators and, and uh, phased array antennas and photo detectors and the whole array of creativity uh, that um, makes possible what we call as the electromagnetic spectrum is a manifestation not of choices of, in an environment, but of innate human creativity, and uh, which always comes as a surprise to us. Now, uh, from the foundation of economics, including Adam Smith, uh, who was mimicking the great system of the world of uh, Isaac Newton, economists have focused on uh, a kind of uh, physics envy. They've uh, wanted to uh, produce a science that uh, is uh, predictable uh, and, uh, and, and, and intrinsically deterministic. The mathematics that they use is a determinist mathematics. And the image of uh, the human being that is uh, at the core of these models of the economy, almost all novel models of the economy, is as a, 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 a optimizing agent. It really springs from bi behavioral psychology. It's the last, survival, the last survival of the Skinner box is really homo economicus uh, at the center of, uh, of 
all economic models. It's, uh, it's the um, economic man as a function of his environment. And, and uh, this model actually, uh, we adopted pretty fully in supply side economics. So there would, you know, we, you know, uh, it's the stimulus and response model that explains why lower tax rates uh, produce higher revenues. And, and uh, this, and so there was really a conflict at the heart of, of wealth and poverty in the theory of economics that I expounded there. And that was between the, uh, this homo economicus making optimizing uh, decisions or reassembling chemical elements in the grander uh, vision of uh, Paul Romer or in the Austrian scheme often as an arbitrageur or somehow an economy of uh, uh, opportunity scout, which is Israel Kirzner's better definition. But all these uh, make the entrepreneur and the human agent is somehow a function of, of larger forces of his environment. He is not the, uh, uh, the source and creator in the image of his creator. He is, the, uh, he is uh, a function. And, uh, and, and so uh, the conflict in wealth and poverty was between this homo economicus and the heroic creative entrepreneur uh, that uh, is uh, bringing true novelties into the world. And, uh, and that, uh, that really is the, uh, the reason why when I started studying information theory, which I've been doing for pretty much 20 years, uh, it increasingly became clear that this was a complete economic theory because uh, Shannon's uh, fundamental insight is that uh, information is surprise and, uh, and uh, that uh, information is not the product of a predictable process. It's not an effect or manifestation of order. It is the opposite of order. It is uh, surprisal, entropy, unexpected bits. And so it seemed to me that since Shannon's definition of information uh, made uh, freedom not only a condition of, uh, of uh, information and creativity, but also the very criterion of, uh, of information. And, uh, and, and I believe that this uh, model of information that comes from uh, uh, the, the mathematics of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of best expounded now by uh, Chaitin, um, a former uh, IBM researcher who's uh, really one of the world's great mathematicians and the true follower of uh, Shannon. And, uh, but also von Neumann and Gödel and Turing, all these uh, uh, founders of 20th century mathematics, mathematics really 
uh, created the foundations also for a 21st century economics and an economics of knowledge and surprisal and entropy mm -hmm. rather than of, uh, of predictability and equilibrium and arbitrage. And, uh, and, and it really does allow us to say that an economy is a knowledge system, not chiefly an incentive system. And there are rules of, knowledge, of, of the growth of knowledge. Knowledge uh, stems from the uh, development of falsifiable propositions. And uh, that's uh, uh, Popper's uh, famous formulation. And in economics, uh, enterprises are entrepreneurial tests of uh, new ideas uh, couched in a manner that's falsifiable by bankruptcy and failure. And uh, no capitalist uh, enterprise that cannot fail is, uh, is uh, truly capitalist. It's, uh, if, if the government guarantees it, it can't yield knowledge and thus, by definition, can't produce growth because growth is a process of learning. That's what growth is. It's learning. It's not the division of labor. It's the division of learning that uh, expands uh, markets and the proliferation of learning processes that uh, magnify knowledge. And, and uh, th this really does allow us to say that capitalism is an economy of mind based on caput, as uh, uh, Michael Novak uh, as put it, the Latin word caput. It's uh, capitalism is a knowledge system that uh, uh, it's an economy of mind. And the great thing about an economy of mind is it can change as fast as minds can change. So it's a very optimistic theory. It's a theory that says that uh, um, that. Uh, the economy could change uh, tomorrow if we change policy. And Arnold, in a brilliant essay on the 19, uh, um, uh, you know, post-war, 1947-48, you know, revival after the Second World War, showing that, uh, uh, you know, this was really the great test of Keynesian economics. After the Second World War, all the Keynesian economists agreed, and most other economists agreed as well, that, uh, that unless government spending continued at the same level that uh, it had maintained throughout the war, unless there was some way to summon to uh, uh, keep government spending at the same level, the economy would uh, uh, enter the worst depression and disruption in the history of economics and uh, Paul Samuelson's memorable uh, view that I first encountered from Arnold. And uh, the, you know, instead we had the 61% drop in uh, government spending uh, and two or three years, we had a uh, million government workers laid off, 150,000 regulators uh, fired. We had 
uh, a whole array of government con controls uh, removed by this uh, troglodytic Republican Congress in 1946 that the people uh, uh, elected thereby saving the West by some uh, measures. I mean, if we'd gone into uh, an economy like the British entered after the Second World War, it's unlikely we would have won the Cold War, and, uh, and it's, it's likely that we would have had a much dimmer experience. So this is a, um, the economy, economy of mind can change overnight, and uh, that's why uh, uh, we change it by changing people's minds and changing their ideas, and that's the great work that Cato's doing today and has been doing for decades. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, George. Uh, in defense of Milton Friedman, not his monetary policy, uh, Cato, Cato likes competitive free markets, including in money. Uh, we've been very critical of the Fed. Uh, Friedman, in fact, later on in his life, uh, would like to have abolished the Fed, and uh, he actually was in favor of um, going towards more competitive currencies, uh, but that's another story. But in China, Friedman also, uh, in the same book that George published his article in, uh, talked about what China needs are not just free markets, but private free markets. Uh, and of course, Friedman's always been an advocate of economic and personal freedom. Uh, so. Uh, I, I would like to uh, remind people of that as well. Uh, Arnold Kling uh, is a Cato adjunct scholar. He's also affiliated with the uh, George Mason University's Marcatus Center. Uh, he's a former economist on the staff of the Board of Governors. We won't hold that against him. Uh, Federal Reserve System from 1980 to 1986. And he also served as senior economist at uh, Freddie Mac uh, from 1986 to 1994. Uh, but then in 1994, uh, I guess he came to his senses and started homefair.com, one of the first commercial sites on the World Wide Web. Uh, he's a prolific author. He's uh, the author of uh, several recent books, including From Poverty to Pos Prosperity, and also Unchecked and Unbalanced, How the Discrepancy Between Knowledge and Power Caused the Financial Crisis. And uh, this book, the title uh, influenced uh, the title of, uh, of George, George's most recent book. Um, he's also has co-edited Econ Blog uh, and now has his own blog, Ask Blog, which is kind of interesting name. Um, Arnold holds a PhD in economics uh, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where they like to optimize. Okay. <laughs> Okay, th thank you very much. It's really an honor to be here uh, sharing a stage with George Gilder. And I'd like to try to do two things in my remarks. One is to acknowledge my debt to you, both sort of intellectually and kind of career-wise. Uh, and then to, um, then to needle you about your deviations from the party line. Um, so, um, so first, my, my debt. So uh, as, as Jim pointed out, I uh, did my graduate work in, uh, in Kendall Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where, and I think this is, this is true in 
really just if you take any high level uh, economics courses today in any location or whatever, uh, the, the basic paradigm for the economy is it's one gigantic factory. So the one, you know, you, as a graduate student, you just copy down equations from the board. That's what you do. And uh, the equation that's in every course, micro, macro, whatever, is uh, y equals f of kl, the production function. And that depicts you know, the economy as a factory. You can think of you know, output y as you know, razor blades, refrigerators, cars, whatever stuff. And uh, it is produced by uh, capital and labor, capital being things like um, blast furnaces, lathes, motors of all kinds, things, you know, heavy equipment in factory. And then labor being physical labor, uh, men who are uh, shaping, fastening, coating, and finishing stuff as it comes along the assembly line. I actually did that uh, for a couple of summers in a factory. Um, so that's the picture of the economy's giant factory. Uh, what uh, George's latest book would say is uh, that's not a good description of the economy. Um, a factory, a, a good factory, ideally, is a low information system. I mean, the whole point of things like statistical process control, TQM, Six Sigma, all these buzzwords, is to reduce variation, noise, you know, have no surprises when something comes off the end of an assembly line. So that's a good factory. It's a terrible economy. What you want is an economy with uh, a lot of news so that it can grow. Uh, so, uh, so right away, uh, we can see that, you know, the, that the information theory versus the factory model gives you a different picture of, of what's a good economy. Um, so anyway, but I, you know, I, I knew none of that, obviously, coming out of grad school. And where, what hit me, the first kind of uh, thing to hit me was in 1989 reading uh, Microcosm. That's when, uh, when Microcosm came out. It's George Gilder's book on the microchip. And there, it's, it's not a Y equals F of KL world at all. It's uh, what I remember from it is you know, the microchip consisting of like sand etched with human ingenuity. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of all it is. And uh, I also took to heart the uh, catchphrase of that book, which is listen to the technology. So in the fall, in like the winter of 1993, I got just a very brief, literally two minute glimpse of the first graphical web browser. And it struck me, wow, this is, this is a big deal. And uh, a few months later, I quit my job at, at Freddie Mac, drove uh, a couple miles down the road to one of the first web hosting services, uh, sat next to one of the partners and who showed me how to code up a website. And then, you know, within a couple hours, you know, faster than you can say healthcare.gov, I had a commercial <laughs> web business. Go and uh, there were probably about 20 profit-seeking web businesses at that time. Um, one reason why there were so few is that, you know, most people hadn't heard of the internet at that point. And the other reason was that everyone who heard of the internet knew, quote unquote, that, uh, there wasn't enough bandwidth to support businesses on the World Wide Web. Because if you're going to have a business, you need households. If you're going to try to, you know, create advertising for households, households have to be able to access it. And households could not access the web at the time because there wasn't enough bandwidth. Uh, but um, I knew that, well, if you're 
Starting out on the curve, sometimes you have to start early on, this, on the learning curve that, that uh, Microcosm talked about. And then uh, coincidentally, around that time, late 1993-1994, all of the sort of niche magazines that talked about the internet, things like Wired and Forbes ASAP, were just covered with George Gilder, who at that time was the prophet of bandwidth abundance. So don't worry about the fact that bandwidth isn't here. It's going to be abundant. Treat it as if it's going to be abundant. So I, I kind of stuck with that. Um, and you know, a few a few years later, indeed, the you know the bandwidth was there, the people were there, and by that time, I had some business partners who were who were very good. And uh, venture capitalists were unfortunately throwing money at our competitors, and that's that's a scary thing to see, you know, five and ten million dollars being thrown at competitors. But uh, as one of my business partners put it, well, these guys are just going to have to pay tuition. Uh, the point being that, that they were just starting out on the learning curve and they were going to spend a lot of those $5 million and $10 million seed money making the mistakes that we'd already made. Uh, so we figured, hey, if, if, they're willing to, if, if, if a company that's just starting out on the learning curve is worth $5 or $10 million, maybe ours is worth even more. And, and that, that proved to be correct. Uh, so that Gilder-esque way of thinking about it. What was the uh, name was of your company? This was uh, something called homefair.com, uh, which I think still exists. Uh, but I, I, could, I, I could explain the, the, sad, the sad tale of how my child was taken from me and so on. But uh, I, I'm, I'm not crying a whole lot over that one. Um, OK, so now let me turn to, uh, to, to the needling part. Um, the, uh, I guess the main a main theme of this book, okay, there's obviously the information theory metaphor for the economy. But a big point here is on a more philosophical issue, which I have, I have a harder time coming to a strong point of view on, sort of human agency versus you know, being you know, a product of your environment. Um, you know, I think that's it's it's really a big issue, and of course, you know, he comes very strongly. Uh, you come very strongly on the side of, of human agency. So, if if I could just set this up with extreme caricatures. So, the view that you don't like, I would caricature as the model of human beings are just little balls spinning around the roulette wheel of life, and then you know, eventually, slots open up as the roulette wheel evolves, and we kind of fall in. Um, and the view that you prefer is a view in which the entrepreneur is this sort of Ayn Rand superhero, uh, you know, shaping the world, uh, you know, a, a member of the Calvinist elect, you know, that, 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 that success indicates that you've been touched by God and that you should be uh, commanding even more resources going forward and so on. So that, those two extremes. Um, an illustration I, I would come up with would be uh, like the Beatles. So how do you, how you would fit those in, in the, so in the you know roulette world roulette wheel of life uh, model, the Beatles. Uh, well, and then you have the 1960s, early 1960s, racial barriers are coming down in the U.S. Class barriers are coming down in the U.K. So a slot opens up in the roulette wheel of life for a pop music synthesis uh, that crosses all these barriers, and the Beatles just rolled into that slot. So that would be the roulette wheel of life view. Um, and then the alternative view 
would focus on Brian Epstein, uh, as the, you young people may not know, but he was the sort of the manager who or the, the guy who discovered the Beatles uh, in Liverpool and then uh, with great determination effort turned them into national international stars. And so, you know, the role of the Randian superhero uh, or the Calvinist elect would be played by this gay Jewish entrepreneur, uh, Brian Epstein. And um, so those are kind of the two extremes, the roulette wheel and the, uh, um, the uh, um, you know, sort of Randian entrepreneur, the, the uh, person with uh, the individual uh, Making, making the big difference. And I think I, I, I have some sympathy really with both ends and would try to come up with something in the middle uh, in kind of my view. Um, okay, so some, a few specific quibbles. Uh, I'll, I'll pile on, on this issue of spontaneous order. I, uh, you do say spontaneous order is an oxymoron based on the idea that, well, if it's spontaneous, it's news and surprise from information theoretic point of view, and order is predictable, no surprise. Uh, that's a fair statement, but I think there are a couple connotations of spontaneous, and we're, you're kind of picking out the wrong one. The other connotation of spontaneous, in addition to being sort of news and surprise, or instead of it, is that it's not directed by a central person, that it emerges organically. Uh, it, it, no one person uh, is, in, is determining it. And I think it's that notion that, that people have in mind, that we have in mind for spontaneous order. Uh, you also, that also comes up in the issue of legal order, where you say, well, a, a, you know, law cannot emerge in a Darwinian process. And uh, in fact, uh, the party line here, I think, might be that it can. In fact, in five days, if you were to come back or you were to watch on video when they discuss uh, Bruno Leone's work here, the Italian legal theorist, say exactly that better law actually is what emerges in a Darwinian process. Um, then you also, uh, you talk about financial markets and you make a point that I strongly agree with, which is that um, the idea that you can have transparent financial institutions is you know, inconsistent with the, what the information theory view of what financial institutions do. That is, they take very high information projects and fund them with liabilities that are low, low information, very predictable for the con consumer, for the bank depositor. So the idea of transparency is basically to eliminate that and would, you say, ultimately in the end, lead to, um, you know, uh, take us up all the way back to a barter system. That, um, and that's, that's a very strong point and of course everyone you know, after the financial crisis, sound, tried to sound wise by saying we need more transparency. And the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission blamed the crisis in part on a lack of transparency. And, uh, and I'm really glad you made that, that point that, uh, that that really, if you look at carefully at what banks do, that uh, you, you, can't, you really wouldn't wish for transparency. Be, be aware of what you wish for there. Unfortunately, you go on uh, shortly thereafter to say that the financial crises have been reduced by the Federal Reserve, and uh, that's, that's a deviation. And uh, I would, I would t send you back a few weeks here to the uh, monetary uh, conference that was held here, and uh, 
You'll find it online and look for George Selgin's speech, and uh, he'll set you straight on that. Um, what did I say? I don't, I don't know what... You said that the, the Fed has re reduced financial crises, uh, the propensity for financial crises. Um, well, I might believe that. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so, but, uh, you know, I, I want to finish on, on a more positive note. I think that the information... Uh, theory metaphor is useful. Uh, I think it is important to get out of the straitjacket of thinking of the economy as one big factory. And it's just amazing to me that the economics profession is just stuck where it was really in 1970. Uh, and when, when you could have conceivably thought of the economy as one big factory, but now it's, it's hopelessly bad. Um, and I think that one of the interesting issues is sort of what is the source of information or where is the locus of information and what is the source of creativity in the economy? And I think for too many economists, they want to say that the information or assume that the information is in the minds of technocrats. So ultimately, you know, the, the solution of last resort or even first resort to market failures is technocrats. Um, I think in George Gilder's view, the information and creativity resides in the entrepreneur and the successful entrepreneur. Uh, I prefer to think of it as residing in the market system, that the market system is smarter than any individual in it. Um, we, you know, recently, we've had healthcare.gov, and you know, Obama wondered why it didn't come out as well as Amazon or um, Kayak. And what I say the reason is that when you observe Amazon or Kayak, what you're observing is the outcome of a, the survivors of a tournament, a really intense tournament amounting hundreds of thousands of companies. So all of, much of, most of the companies that Amazon and Kayak beat out were probably worse than healthcare.gov. But it beat them out because you have a market system that winnows them out, as you point out. And it's the, the system's ability to winnow out losers that is the important thing. So it's not so much that, uh, that the individual entrepreneur has so much information concentrated in, uh, in his or her mind, it's that the market system, by testing different, as you say, you know, having falsifiable hypotheses and getting rid of the false ones. I mean, healthcare.gov is, is here whether you, you know, it's non-falsifiable in that sense. Uh, so the, the market system, by testing hypotheses, ends up being smarter than any individual in it. Thank you, Arnold. Uh, very thoughtful comments. Um, and I, I certainly agree that the uh, information uh, metaphor is an extremely useful way to look at things. Um, I don't know whether George's ever read uh, Jim Buchanan's uh, essay, uh, What Should Economists Do? Uh, he also wrote a book on that. But uh, Buchanan was also extremely critical of the overuse of mathematics and economics and uh, the movement away from looking at an exchange model of the economy. And of course, Hayek looked at the economy as a complex system. Uh, Cadillacs, uh, rather than simply a machine. Uh, so I think there are uh, economists that would 
certainly agree with George. And uh, the thing is, in, 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 today, it's, the economics has become so technical, and uh, most of the emphasis is on optimization models and dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models at the Fed and so on. So I think George, uh, George's book is a, a very good read, especially for economists to see another, another side of the, the coin. Um, we have uh, plenty of time now for questions. Um, if you would direct your questions uh, to either George or Arnold or to both, um, and also identify yourself and keep your questions uh, uh, brief, uh, then we can handle quite a few questions. So uh, if you just raise your hand, uh, I'll call on uh, several people and wait for the microphone. Uh, about right here, and then we'll do this one over here. Okay, You can just take it. Gordon Johnson, a retired businessman. You, you've described a wonderful world of new world where knowledge replaces or is more powerful than the old factors of production and creativity. Uh, how, where does love fit into this system? Where does the need to care for our neighbor and how do we deal with, if, if government is basically high entropy and we want low entropy government, where will the entropy, where will the energy, where do we, where do we get a market to help the, the people who get squeezed out of the present system? Right. If markets are the most uh, best way to sort things out, where is the market for helping poor people? Yeah. Well, uh, a, a, a fundamental principle of uh, information theory is that it takes a low entropy carrier to bear high entropy information. This is, this is why uh, uh, all the information of the world is increasingly migrating to the electromagnetic spectrum because the electromagnetic spectrum is a low entropy carrier. It's guaranteed by the speed of light. Uh, so you can always differentiate the signal from the carrier at the other end. And if uh, you have... Uh, a government that's high entropy, that's that's constantly making surprising decisions and intrusions into the carrier. Uh, it uh, the horizons of the economy shrink, and uh, the time horizons, in particularly, contract. And so you get an economy that I think we have today and have had for some time, dominated by hypertrophy of finance and and uh, and uh, arbitrage and sh short-term trading of the sort that uh, epitomizes Wall Street today, where they're the biggest uh, customer for the supercomputer industry trying to um, gain nanosecond gain, uh, advance advantages in uh, trading speed. And it's just preposterous to think that this actually is improving liquidity and helping the economy. It's just, it really, we really have uh, reached uh, kind of, uh, so a part of the low entropy carrier is family. I mean, the family is a crucial uh, way that the, that, uh, the short term motivations of uh, deracinated individuals can gets projected into the future. And as I always wrote in my books before Wealth and Poverty, uh, uh, you know, the, along, the man's tide of the future largely passes through the womb of a woman. 
And uh, this is uh, really the way, one of the ways, one of the low entropy carriers that extends uh, human life into the future and provides a fabric of community in which uh, all people find love and support. And so that's really the fundamental model. And uh, I, I, th I think that, uh, that uh, uh, subject to all the, the key test of efficiency and uh, if, if a welfare system destroys families, it destroys welfare. And so uh, it's absolutely obvious that uh, the current welfare state is a monster. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, I have the make the unpopular observation that uh, the welfare state has had a worse impact on the black family than slavery did. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a terrible uh, construct and it has to be, it needs uh, very radical reforms and it has zero compassion in it. If you actually encounter, I spent a year writing a book called Visible Man, where I've lived in the welfare culture for that period. And really, um, it's just, uh, it's a welfare trap and it destroys men. And uh, because it destroys the connections of men with their children, which is the key, key to the, well, I could, I better. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, we had another, how about these two? My name is Jim DeLonge. Arnold, uh, it seems to me there's a fit between George's work on knowledge and the economy and your work on patterns of sustainable specialization and trade. Am I right? And I'd sort of like to hear you talk about that. <laughs> um, I feel like the last question asked George to summarize about three of his books. And yep. this question asked me to summarize about 20 blog posts, and I yes. think I'm just going to take a pass. We can we can talk about it later. This is these these are recent blogs, or uh, they're stretched yeah, over yeah, a yeah. year or two. So yeah. I'll have to. Yeah. Well, we I'll I'll try to. Because I don't think so well on my feet necessarily. I'll try to write something down in response to that question. Yeah. Hi, Pat, uh, Pat Spann, just represent myself. I wonder if um, the two of you could comment on um, um, you know, the president's recent thing about inequality in our systems. And, it, you know, it seems to me that we've reached a point in our country where a, a person by individual effort and, and work and personal responsibility can rise, you know, as high as they can. And it just this whole idea that somehow the government is going to end uh, income inequality, I'm just very nervous about uh, where that leads to. Yeah. Why don't you go first? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the uh, I I think that um, this uh, 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 this is the f fundamental uh, pretext of socialism is always uh, inequality. And uh, government's the chief source of it. And uh, so there's, uh, as government grows, there's always plenty of it. Uh, we've, uh, 
as a result of all the government guarantees, much le less knowledge gets uh, propagated in the economy. And uh, so there are less opportunities. And, uh, and, with, the, and uh, with the horizons of the economy shrinking with, uh, as a result of capricious and destructive regulation, uh, you get uh, more inequality. And that's hypertrophy of finance, where, where most of these incomes are ultimately backstopped by government guarantees. And, and so uh, they aren't uh, uh, capitalist incomes. They're tolls and rents and and, uh, and uh, they do produce uh, uh, actually destructive inequality. Uh, but the remedies are, are completely uh, uh, delusional on the, you know, the, the remedy of, re of, of reducing inequality by expanding government uh, just spreads poverty. Let's just to say what he said. Um, and just, you know, quantitatively, I think the number of regulated, the percentage of people in regulated occupations has, like, gone up by tenfold since the Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of inequalities do come from that. From the, that. And uh, I don't see how, you know, things like raising the minimum wage is going to, you know, by pulling up the ladder, I don't see how that, you know, helps uh, helps reduce inequality, but unfortunately, we're that's the sort of narrative. One, you know, my latest ebook suggests that progressives think naturally in terms of an oppressor oppressed narrative, and you know that that narrative is is what. I think if you believe that poor people are oppressed and rich people are oppressors, then that takes you you know invariably in the policy direction they're going to go. But and I don't know how to get them off of that metaphor because I think it's pretty deeply embedded in how they view the world. One of the th things that's happening is uh, is that uh, the bigger getting bigger, uh, you know the and the last. Um, uh, Several years, last decade, the number of uh, IPOs, you know, initial public offerings, where you launch major new rivals to the established firms, has uh, plummeted. So you get uh, in the past, uh, when I started doing angel and venture capital, uh, you you had uh, six IPOs for every merger and acquisition event. So. The amount of of rivalry was constantly expanding in the economy, and new sources of knowledge and experiment were increasingly multiplying. Well, now there are twenty mergers and acquisitions for every IPO, and uh, just a complete reversal. The IPO is has been is being extinguished, and uh, big companies are buying. You know all the investments I, I make, I now mostly there, I've just come from a conference of them and most of them are aimed to, to sell out to uh, Google or Amazon or Apple or Intel or whatever. And uh, thus they, you know, all these companies are buying their competitors. And, uh, and when they buy them, usually they don't flourish. So this is a really, uh, a, 
Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, uh, Dodd-Frank, and all these uh, just steady expansion of regulation and insider trading rules and fair disclosure rules. I always say that the, the government's uh, idea is uh, you, you can't invest in anything you understand, anything you know about. Uh, and uh, the perfect investment is, is ours. Invest in our state lotteries where no one knows more than you do. It's, uh, it's, all, uh, it's, it's all a knowledge-free model of economics, and, and it's guaranteed to spread poverty and, and uh, misery. Let's see. We go over on this side. I'll take uh, the gentleman in the first row and then uh, back five rows or so. Uh, Brian Kahn, MIT and Computer and Communications Industry Association. The patent system. We've got a big floor debate going on over patent reform today. Yeah. Nothing has been said about the patent system. How does this fit in? We have 20, well, we have 2 million patents in, in, that are active today. Uh, that translates into 40 million patent claims. Uh, is this a hybrid system where you have a government side that purports to be a low entropy system, uh, but or purports to be a, a, a high entropy system, but is in, act, in fact a low entropy system. It is supposed to be our central mechanism for eliciting new knowledge and, uh, and for transferring knowledge. How does it really stack up? Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right, and you're right on target, and don't uh, relent. I mean, our current patent system is, uh, is really uh, reducing knowledge these days. I mean, they're promiscuous in awarding patents that are not non-obvious, they're obvious, they aren't reduced to practice, they, they don't fit the criteria for innovation that uh, the patent system was designed to foster. They're incremental advances within businesses that, uh, that are what entrepreneurs do. I mean, the, the idea of the business process patent just is such... It, it's just totally laughable extension by lawyers of the domains of patent law. I mean, business processes is what businesses do to compete. And the idea that you get a 17-year monopoly because you invent the uh, one-click one button for... Uh, it's just it's it's really an absurdity and it shouldn't be uh, you should you laugh at people who say that the current proliferation of patents actually advances knowledge and opportunity and and incentivizes real invention. It's much there are patents, which means that it lies open and they're latent and most of the of the knowledge in the society comes in latent. Which means it lies hidden. And, uh, Arnold, do you want to? No, that's not. I think Cato should do more on patents. Well, we need to raise some money to hire some, right. some people to do that. So, I'm George Harris. Uh, I'm a retiree from Los Angeles. And uh, your remarks about uh, uh, Milton Friedman telling the Chinese to manage their currency. Uh, reminded me of uh, Bitcoin, and I'm still trying to get my mind on uh, around how that's going to fit into the information economy. Mm. 
I don't Could know, you comment? Either it's it's uh, you know it's a stunt. It's uh, it's been taken over by the gamblers, and it's uh, you know it, it's 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 an experiment. Let's see what happens to it. Right now, people are just just uh, the fast traders are uh, seeing it as a as an opportunity to trade. Yeah. I, I would just add, if if you know, if 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 the virtue of money, and I think Gilder, you know, George Gilder points out, is to be a you know sort of low entropy carrier, Bitcoin's not satisfying that. Good point. Yeah, I think this gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Aaron Rhodes. I'm, uh, I'm a human rights activist, and uh, I'm with a small think tank called the Freedom Rights Project. And I wondered, uh, Mr. Gilder, if you could talk a little bit about how uh, your theories apply to our politics in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. I think a cliche of, of political science is that uh, knowledge is, is a currency of politics. But what about our politics today? What about political parties in the United States, how they're functioning? What about the media and mm. about uh, academic uh, 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 trends? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, those are a lot of questions. But the essence of it is that um, I think our politics are being debauched today by uh, uh, a spurious science of public opinion polls and by uh, uh, campaign finance regulations that uh, treat unions and corporations and these as, uh, as entities in politics. And I don't think they have that role, that uh, citizens should be able to give anything they want to a campaign, but uh, a corporation should not be uh, with a specific... Uh, enterprise goals should not be able to bribe politicians to support their particular interests. So I'm, I'm for uh, uh, giving individual citizens uh, unlimited rights to contribute to campaigns as they wish and speak as they wish. But, but as corporate entities, they should not be permitted to. A PAC is essentially a monomaniac. A PAC is an entity that has uh, one interest that it pursues and pays for almost all the time. And it's, it's, uh, it's a bribe, bribe machine. It, is, it isn't, a, it isn't a, a free citizen participating in a democratic order. So, so that's uh, that side of it. And, and uh, what makes politicians so boring, what makes... Uh, makes them uh, makes uh, most of us yawn whenever a politician comes into the room to speak is that they try to tell you what you already know they they've uh, taken polls and done market surveys and focus groups and they figured out what you already think and then you tell then they tell you what you think and uh, this is uh, rear view mirror politics it's uh, it's zero entropy communications and so it's, uh, and it, it really makes our politics uh, incredibly bad. And it cripples conservatives who go out and, and uh, take polls and find out that all the government programs are in fact popular if you couch them in the right polling. 
Lipman wrote about this. It's the phantom public. It doesn't exist. Leaders produce the public. Uh, supply creates its own demand in public opinion as well as in politics. And the idea that public opinion polls capture something real and important that to which politicians have to defer in a democratic process is, is delusional. And it's destroying the... Uh, content and uh, dignity and and effectiveness of political leadership. Let's see, how about in the back? We haven't got anybody, way in the back there, anybody? Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Bob Shadler, American Foreign Policy Council. I would like you to address how uh, competition and cooperation uh, fit your two models. It seems to me standard economics, including free market economics, looks to competition as a source, and then it gets prices become the source of incentives. Almost every textbook takes pains to exclude the family in whatever economics is about. Some economists, Becker and so forth, have tried to penetrate that. But fundamentally, uh, and taking off on Gordon's comment on love, a family is not based fundamentally on things that an economics textbook addresses. And it seems socialism is an effort to create kind of a family approach but with top-down coercion. Is your system with information as a key a way of having bottom-up or peer cooperation that's uncoerced, but is fundamentally more cooperative than competitive? Very well, well put. <laughs> I mean, family is a learning institution and all learning in the society is producing wealth and growth. Uh, let's see. Okay, how about right right here? Uh. Uh, hi, George. Um, Mark Klugman. Yeah. Um, the, the Austrians talk about the impossibility of economic calculation under socialism. And I, I was reading Knowledge and Power the other day, and I said, okay, and and George Gilder is talking about the impossibility of economic prediction under capitalism. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, you've got quite a track record on making good predictions, uh, rather extraordinary. Uh, I, I still recall your predictions that uh, Hong Kong in 1997 would begin the takeover of China. Yeah. Uh, that worked out quite well. Arnold I said mentioned that your, in 1988 yeah. during the trip. That yeah. was Arnold mentioned. Everybody your, was yeah. was saying all the terrible things that were going to happen when Hong Kong got took over by China, and 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 I think it was a press conference. I can't remember, but they asked me uh, whether uh, what would happen in 1997. I said that's when Hong Kong will begin taking over China, and. Uh, <laughs> And, and uh, yeah, quite extraordinary. And Arnold mentioned your predictions about, about telecosm and bandwidth. And I, my question is, your, your latest insights the, around the information theory of, of capitalism, 
does it lend itself to any predictions you'd care to offer? Um, it, I'd, I'd predict that uh, the environment can change a lot more rapidly than anybody anticipates is the key thing. That I'd, uh, I think we're probably going to have terrific new conservative or uh, dream uh, leadership in uh, the next uh, few years. It's already emerging, and it's, it's going to transform the U.S. economy. Yeah, we have time for several more questions. So, uh, yeah, over about over here. And then... Uh, here. Yes, uh, Michael Enders, I'd like to hear you speak about your views on antitrust um, in the economy. I think the constant pursuit of monopolies and oligopolies are, is uh, just by the time that antitrust actually mobilizes against a particular offense, it's obsolete. And uh, all... Uh, innovation is the pursuit of fugitive positions of monopoly. If you didn't have uh, monopoly after you made an invention, you uh, you couldn't pay for the costs of it. And uh, monopoly is is good, and the more of them, the better. <laughs> yeah, I think you had a question. Yeah, the woman back here in the. Uh... Oh, to you. you. can't see me in the lights. Okay. Uh, I'm Tony Carroll. I'm an investor um, with the Hong Kong uh, Investment Fund, and I, I'd like to point out that actually Hong Kong was originally founded by Shanghai families who fled China and built Hong Kong, and they just reassumed what was their earlier role in being the governing families in, of, of China. So, I mean, it was really a reversion back to what was the status quo ante yeah. before 1949. And, and so you were just right. You were just... A little delayed in the observation, perhaps. <laughs> um, I'd love to see a panel with you and Bill Easterly to talk a little bit about you know, your prescriptions, perhaps is perhaps a strong word, but your observations on if you were a poor developing country, say Rwanda, and you only had a certain amount of tools to de deploy in trying to build your economy, uh, where would you put your chips? Would it be like they did, investing in technology, human resources, enabling environment, or would you do other things and invest in physical infrastructure, uh, invest in agriculture? I don't know, but I, I'm sort of, Bill comes out often with many of the same conclusions or observations yeah. that you come up with yeah. that planning never works, that yeah. you try to focus on the enabling environment and then people will make the right choices yeah. and then they will be all better off for that. Easterling is in that, in your book, right? Yeah. He did good, good interview as I recall. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's in uh we're doing a commercial for the, the book where the, the publisher changed its title between the uh, hardcover and the paperback to try to fool you into buying it twice. <laughs> so it was originally called uh, From Poverty to Prosperity, and now I think it's called something like Hidden Wealth. Um, I read it as what wealth? As Hidden Wealth. Hidden Wealth. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a terrific uh, book uh, where... Arnold both has a great essay, and he interviews with, with uh, Schultz. Um, Nick, whole, Nick, Nick Schultz, yeah. Nick Schultz, a whole bunch of uh, great economists who make really interesting yeah. observations. Yeah, my, I think 
you're right. There'd probably be a consistency there that, uh, you know, if you focus on the idea of government should be a low entropy carrier, then you focus on, you know, creating law, uh, maybe some, you know, basic in infrastructure, you know, sewage, uh, whatever you need to, whatever can help, you know, reduce malaria, green swamps or whatever. But um, I think the evidence of even government involvement in education it seems to be that it's counterproductive. Uh, there's a great new book by Lant Pritchett on that. He's another development economist. So really kind of minimal other than providing this sort of predictable law and order and then let the market produce the surprises and uh, you know, markets, you know, capitalism eliminates poverty and, you know, governments redistribute it. So. Good. Perhaps we should ask George what he thinks of uh, the new Pope's uh, uh, letter with respect to uh, poverty and uh, the state and the market. Have you read much of that yet or thought I, about I it? I haven't. I've read reports of it. Mario yeah. Grady had a good a piece in the Wall Street Journal the other day, critical. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think it's a little, uh, it's disappointing, but he's, you know, they're, they think they got to pander to the left in order to, um, you know, maintain their family policies, which I think are, are positive myself. Um, but it's. Uh, I'd like to ask George one question, actually, and then we'll take maybe one, one or two others. Uh, going back to China again, uh, kind of what your thoughts are on the uh, future evolution of China? Uh, you correctly stated that uh, China's progress has been due to the emergence of a non-state sector rather than simple privatization of state-owned enterprises, hmm. and that's been very successful. Um, but uh, from the Kosian standpoint, and I think he's right, uh, they need a free market uh, for ideas. And it doesn't seem like China can become a global financial capital unless they have a free flow of information. And I hmm. wonder what, your, what probability you put on that uh, emerging over the next uh, decade or so. I think there's a pretty good chance. Uh, if we continue our, we're, we're, we have a, Every year we have less of a free market for ideas in the United States, and uh, China seems to have more. Um, but, um, you know, they're a communist. They have this communist apparatus that, uh, that they give control of all the kind of stagnant parts of the society, uh, rendering them more stagnant and thus uh, smaller in the future. Well, in this case, monopoly is not a good thing. Uh, monopoly over uh, information. Yeah. Um, let's see. Why don't we take two more questions and then we'll head off for lunch. How about this uh, lady right here in the uh, fourth row? Francis Johnson. The news this week um, on the front page is that Mr. Obama has diagnosed the main problem of... of the U.S. society as inequality and social immobility. Could you talk a little more about who will be the agents to use information technology to address these two problems our president defines for us? Well, I thought it was climate change. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
get with it. New problem. I mean, okay. Well, I think the inequality and and lack of opportunity is due to climate change, isn't it? I thought it was. I can't. I can't remember. But anyway, I mean, you have to open up the allow as. Arnold wrote, you got to allow the uh, knowledge and power to converge. And uh, by definition, almost uh, knowledge is dispersed. Each of us have different perspectives, different genetic capabilities, different intellectual aspirations, different curiosities and pursuits. And and uh, and uh, our knowledge and is dispersed and uh and uh, power tends to be, it's centrifugal. Power is centripetal. It tends to migrate to the people with guns and, uh, and uh, the government. And uh, it's crucial to disperse and have the knowledge and power converge to produce these uh, entrepreneurial experiments that create opportunity and growth. And that's that's what what has to happen. Uh, Obama's entire goal is to centralize power and uh, the way to stultify an economy, make an economy stupid is to give it give uh, supposedly smart people at the center more power. It's a good quote. Uh, So uh, let's take one more question, then we'll off for lunch, or maybe two more. Uh, how about this gentleman, this gentleman? Thank you. Uh, Mike Leahy with uh, Exos and a recovering attorney. Um, with one? An entity called Exos does uh, privacy software and exchange software. Mm. Um, I'm very taken with your last answer and with Arnold talking about markets uh, and how they operate. And, and the question I'm left with in listening to all this today is that in, in this tension between the heroic individual, who's the entrepreneur, and a market, yeah. how are you actually defining a market? Because there seems to be a tension that most markets are, as we've said, the actions of millions or billions of individuals acting independently, where we seem to ascribe a separate life to the market as if it by itself somehow acts. And I lean more toward Mr. Gilder's position that the market is merely a compilation of actions by individuals. So I'm interested in how you... Yeah, I I don't really... I think it's a mistake to kind of reify the market you know, to make the market a thing that is, uh, and uh, I think this was Adam Smith's great error. You know, the, uh, you know, the division of labor is uh, an effect of the expansion of the market. Uh, the division of labor, the which I really mean uh, learning, the expansion of learning and creativity and knowledge uh, expands the market. That's what is the market. And you can't have a market without entrepreneurs. And so, so the um, without trend, uh, products to transact. And so, 
So I, 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 don't, uh, I don't really like the market, free market focus. That is, I like the free focus, but I don't like the focus as on the market as if it's a structure. It's, there are, you do need a low entropy carrier. You do need uh, the rule of law, the private property rights, uh, stable money, family, all these uh, um, low entropy carriers to bear the flow of um, innovation and creativity that ultimately leads uh, the human race into the future. Another way to say is you need a system. You need a system for testing innovations, and we use when if you think of the market in those terms, then I think it it, it yeah. sort of flows with that theory. If you think of it as something that's static and and a structure, then it doesn't flow with that theory. Okay, I think we have this gentleman. Uh, that that'll be the last question then, uh, Mr. Gilder. Just briefly, what is your perspective on immigration? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm in generally for immigration. I think it's going the other way these days. Uh, I mean, but I'm also uh, I'm I'm also for uh, uh, you know requirement to learn English. I'm you know right now we are you know I we, I have a terrific company in LA called Otoy that wanted to. Uh, and it had a team of 15 wonderful engineers from New Zealand who devoutly wanted to come to the United States. And, uh, but, uh, you know, they were regarded to pose a dire threat to employment in Los Angeles. And, and thus, uh, we now have a company in New Zealand. And that, that's, what's, uh, that's what's happening um, uh, increasingly, that uh, it, we shouldn't imagine that what the U U.S. offers is some ethnic pattern or some endowment of of existing people. Of what what we uh, uh, because throughout our history, um, most of the great innovations, I really say most, have come from immigrants and. And they continue to come from immigrants. Silicon Valley would die in, in uh, 10 minutes if you uh, extracted all the immigrants from Silicon Valley. And I'm not talking about the, the people making your beds at the embassy suites. I'm talking about uh, the people who design all the key programs that make Google work. And so it, it's, it's uh, immigration is... is is uh, positive. It is in, as I wrote in Sexual Suicide decades and decades ago, there's a, a fundamental conflict between uh, ever-growing welfare state and open borders, you, if, uh, which all of Europe is currently experiencing. If, if your welfare benefits are 10 times higher than the daily wage in most of the world, uh, you're... Uh, you just have an impossible uh, set of skewed incentives. And uh, some incentives are, you know, on the fundamental level, incentives obviously matter. Well, I'd like to thank uh, George and Arnold uh, and also you all for a very interesting discussion. Uh, we can now go upstairs uh, for a nice luncheon. So thanks again for coming. Thanks.